Welcome back to this month's episode of the Pigx Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Delaney Howell. This month, I'm excited to welcome back to the show Dr. Chris Rodemaker, a clinical associate professor and swine extension veterinarian at Iowa State University, to help lead the discussion with Dr. Tom Petsnick, a vet owner and veterinarian at ARC Care. During this episode, we're going to be digging into the topic of porcine sapovirus. Sapovirus dates back to the 1980s, when it was first detected in pigs with minor and severe diarrhea. The sapovirus is a calicivirus and often causes co-infections with other pathogens. Although the virus has been identified as the sole cause of diarrhea in a few outbreaks, Tom will share about a specific case he came across that led him down the path to really understanding the illness in hogs. Before we dive into that story with Tom, let's learn more about his background. In 1995, I graduated from veterinary school out of Kansas State University. And at that time, I had a passion for dairy. And I went to a mixed animal practice right out of the gates in southeast Nebraska. And even in that area, they did a a decent amount of dairy work. Well, I ended up replacing the, the pig veterinarian who had gone on to do some other things. And so the guys asked, would you mind doing some work with pigs? And then I'd been around pigs, but I'd never been on it on a large scale. And next thing I knew, I was really enjoying it because it reminded me of the population medicine that I was excited to practice. And so very quickly, within a year or two, went into to work in, in Columbus, Nebraska with, at the time, PST Vet Services. I worked there for probably 14 years and doing just strictly swine. And then in 2010, I opened Art Care, and Art Care was meant to diversify a little bit and then to go out on my own. Was really blessed with some clients right away after I had left production practice and then also expanded into some other livestock species. But really, to this day, my focus has been on pigs and really enjoy that right now, currently with an associate working with me as well. So Tom, as we touched on earlier here, we wanted to learn a little bit more about the story that allowed you to come across sapovirus, because although it's been dated back to the 1980s, it is a relatively uncommon virus to find in swine herds. First and foremost, you know, I've been asked before, what is it that I like about what I do? And I just truly love being a veterinarian. I mean, that's really, you know, the part of of swine practice that I enjoy the most. I mean, I definitely get into the production side of things, but I've never really had as much desire to be a a farm manager or a system manager or doing things like that with record keeping as far as doing it in-house or anything like that. So I love finding problems that I can help fix. And so health has always been the main reason when I go through farms and what I'm looking at. And so we ended up having a farm that had a kind of a chronic history of some mid to late lactation diarrhea. And it wasn't devastating to the point that it was causing a lot of death loss, pre-wean mortality, unless pigs just didn't quite make the quality that they wanted by weaning. But it was obviously robbing a lot of weight from those pigs. It was a good, well-planned uh, nutrition at that farm. Very clean otherwise from a PERS, no PED, anything like that standpoint. We just couldn't understand why these pigs weren't weighing enough. Well, it was clear to me that this diarrhea was was giving us trouble. So that really led into, okay, we've got to figure this out as we ruled out the main players of things like coccidiosis and, and rotavirus. So the need to, to fix that problem in those pigs that led to the research. 
So tell us a little bit more maybe about porcine saprovirus and kind of interested to hear about how you process you went through to find it, right? Because like you say, that it's relatively new in the industry, newly discovered, but, you know, maybe talk about other things that you were looking at and considering how you ruled them out and then how eventually you got to the uh, diagnosis of porcine saprovirus on that farm. As I was mentioning, the chronic kind of problem with diarrhea, and this diarrhea would show up right around seven to 10 days of age. And usually it would resolve pretty well by the time that the pigs were being weaned. Although you would notice some, when the pigs were being weaned down the hallway, you'd, you'd see areas of diarrhea still. They would go to the nursery and it would kind of dry up and go away. You know, you start with the common things, do the common things uncommonly well. So we did thorough diagnostics with the main rule outs being rotaviruses, coccidiosis, certainly bacterial diseases can do that, but it didn't have that look, but certainly what needed to rule out E. coli, salmonella, clostridium, and all those. So worked with the Iowa State Diagnostic Lab really extensively. I personally went in and found pigs that were starting to display diarrhea the day before they were not, and you know worked with the farm manager that way. Chris. And then I personally took the diagnostics, submitted them. And when we got those diagnostics back, the the histopathology would say, you've got a viral enteritis there, but we're not finding any rotavirus and or the other culprits of TGE, PED, and, and Delta coronavirus. Nothing like that. So the common players weren't there. And sometimes we can become a little complacent and say, well, you must have just missed it. You know, we have intermittent shedding, and those types of things that happened with rotavirus, because that was the thing that the, the lesions most resembled. And I was certain that on this one that, more, no, I did not miss it. So this had been going on, you know, for a couple of years in this herd on again, off again. And it was just time to, you know, say, what else can we do? In the old days, we, you know, we used to run electron microscopy and so forth. And about that time, you know, we were really starting to emerge with the availability to do next generation sequencing. And, and so got to looking at the price of it, said, you know, this is costing a lot of money if this is what's causing the problem with the weight problem and the diarrhea. So we went ahead and did next generation sequencing. And so it took a couple of weeks, you know, at that time it was taking over three weeks for those things to come back. And when I finally got a call, uh, I actually got a phone call from Dr. Lee at, in the molecular lab. And he basically told me, he said, you have sapovirus, porcine sapovirus. And Chris, that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And I wasn't quite sure if he meant sapovirus. Yeah, right. And, and that mistake's been made a lot. And and he says, no, 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 this is sapovirus. So he, he quickly educated me that it had been found, but it had been found more so in correlation, you know, like when other people had kind of done just gut surveys of diarrheas and such, it was one of the culprits in there. And then when this came out, though, he was really excited because when they report the reads on the next generation sequencing, it was virtually almost 100 percent of the of the reads. So we weren't picking up rotavirus, weren't picking up any of the normal culprits. And so that's when, you know, I started getting my book out and saying, what can I learn about sapovirus? I'm curious, too, as a follow up on that topic, you touched on at the beginning how you thought it was potentially rotavirus or even something else and that these symptoms have been around since the 1980s. So what was the process of elimination like with the VDL lab to get down to determining that it was sapovirus? 1980s, it's been reported. And it wasn't recognized, though, as a disease, right? It was recognized as 
yeah, we do these workups and we can report there's virus there. But then there was all these other things that were there, Delaney. And so really the thing that it was this NGS that really brought it forward. It was the rule out of everything else and then saying, oh my gosh, on these diarrhea samples, virtually all we're finding is sapovirus. And so then we had to go though and say, okay, that's one thing that we found it. Is that incidental? Is this just a freak thing? And so that really took us to the next step, which was trying to identify if we take clinical and non-clinical litters and we swab a lot of those, is there a difference in the PCRs? Is there a difference that we can correlate clinicals are this way, non-clinicals are that way? And it was really definitive. And so obviously you can get some environmental contamination, those types of things. But on the, on the ones that we classified as clinical, we did over 30 litters of each. And so in the 30 litters that were clinical, every single one of them was positive on the PCR that was developed and they were strong. They averaged well over a 20 CT. They were in the teens at least. And then what was really interesting is then on the non-clinicals, we could find some positive, but they were more in the 30s. And then there were several negatives in that group. So I'll never forget Brad Thacker was looking at that information later on as this thing progressed. And he says, that p-value is just off the charts when he ran it. And so now we're like, okay, now we can correlate the pigs with diarrhea have sapovirus and we have it strong. The pigs that don't have diarrhea, we can maybe detect it a little bit as a weak PCR, but they're not clinical. And then we have a lot of negatives. And so that really led to the next steps. And Tom, as you mentioned, you know, for those of you who haven't done a lot of next generation sequencing, usually if it's something that's there, but doesn't overwhelm the sample, it's not unusual to say we found 10% of the nucleic acids in there were from this species and 5% was this and 2% was from this species. So like Dr. Lee mentioned, the fact that almost 100% of the reads were porcine sapovirus would certainly indicate that was the predominant amount of nucleic acids or that was really the fingerprint that was in the sample. So I think, as you mentioned, then the, the diagnostic lab developed a PCR because that's a whole lot cheaper. And then it's really interesting, like you say, that you can use the CT values almost kind of semi-quantitative, right? And for those of you who haven't looked at that before, it's a little bit inverse of what you would think. In other words, a high number means there's a little bit of virus. A low number means there's a lot. So like you say, when you saw that the clinical samples were in the teens, usually that's associated with man, there's a, there's a lot of antigen there, right? Whereas if you get them in the 30s, the cutoff for positive and negative is usually somewhere around 37, 38, 39. So anything in the 30s is, yeah, it's there, but there's not a whole lot there. So like you say, it's kind of semi-quantitative, but like Dr. Thacker said, right? When you plug that into statistical model, that makes it really clear and obvious that, okay, the diseased animals had low CTs, the non-diseased animals, we could find it occasionally in high CTs. That certainly helped to cement that diagnostic criteria that, yep, this is indeed what we're dealing with. And then the really neat part was now we're all getting really excited. And so then the lab also at ISU, they develop uh, in situ hybridization. And so now we can not only say it correlates to them, but now we can light up the tissues and we can find antigen. We can find the virus right down in where the lesions are. And so that's where it really was like, I felt like at that point, it was like, wow, we're full circle. We have a clinical case. We've ruled out as many other things that we possibly could. We took and we made this into uh, looking for everything in the sample with the next generation sequencing. 
got a very large response, found correlation between litters that were clinical and not clinical. And then now we took it all the way down right to the tissue level. And we can see those virus particles are lighting up the lesions themselves. It was a real fun process and it was very rewarding because now you had an answer. Yeah, that's pretty definitive when you get to that level, when you can actually visualize the viruses through diagnostic means right in the lesions that you're seeing. So yeah, it looks like you definitely had your diagnosis. Us as scientists, we get super excited about that, right? And then the producer's like, well, that's great, but what are we going to do about it? So what was the process you went through with that farm to try to figure out, okay, now how are we going to deal with this now that we know what it is? You get it. They get kind of like, oh, great, you know what it is. Now, what do we do? And so that came, you know, one minute after I said, hey, we know what it is, is, okay, what do we do about it? And so we didn't know because obviously this was new territory. And so we kind of work back on our background that most viral enteritis, whether it's one of the coronaviruses or whether it's rotavirus, typically respond to feedback. Planned exposure of that diarrhea material back to the sows prior to farrowing and billing colostral antibody and then therefore subsequent uh, milk antibodies that will carry those pigs out and protect them so that they don't break with either rotavirus or coronavirus. So we said, well, we don't have an immediate solution, not even close to that. So let's start there. And then along with that, we worked on sanitation. They were a farm that had really good sanitation as it was. But now we started focusing a lot more on how clean are the sows out in the gestation barns. And, and then we looked at environment. Could this just be something that if we fix environment, we fix sanitation and do some feedback that we can get this to go away or at least come down to a manageable level? And so that just didn't work. And I wouldn't say we didn't see some improvements here and there, but there was no consistency, especially with the feedback process that we could really say, yeah, that helped or not. And then, you know, you don't know, man, did I do it right? Whatever. But then as other producers, or I should say other veterinarians started contacting me. And when this whole thing kind of opened up, I mean, almost everybody's tried feedback. It just makes sense. I mean, that's what we do with enteric viruses and, and nobody's ever been able to make it work that I've ever heard. So then that, that really led us, hey, we need a solution for this. And, and so that call went to Merck Animal Health and because at that time they were the only ones that, could, that we could synthesize, make a vaccine that we didn't have to have virus isolation. So that was kind of the bad news of this thing is, okay, great, we have it. Can we make a vaccine? Well, we ruled out a whole lot of potential vaccine because this thing is extremely difficult to virus isolate. And so if we can't isolate it on cell culture, then how do we kill it and put it into a vaccine so we can present that to the sows? So it was really the RNA particle vaccine that really offered us the only hope. And we know from that technology, not all things fit that technology. We were really fortunate that this time it did. And with that, do they know enough about sapovirus to know where the, the antigenic portion of that virus may have come from? Or was it small enough that they were able to just use the entire sequence to build the vaccine from what you knew? Yeah, they had a pretty good feeling of where the antigen, or I should say the antigen presenting area was. And so it's still a decent sized genome that you would want to dial it in. It has to be a smaller piece. And they were right. The GP3 was right where it's at. And that worked really well. We started off with a clinical trial in-house to see vaccinated versus non-vaccinated. We wanted to prove proof of concept. And so we got that then we were able to dial it in and titrate it down to what would be more a commercially available or readily available prescription product. 
Yeah. So what did you guys see and what did you learn from some of those clinical on-farm trials that you performed? What sort of response did you see? So that was actually written up and presented by Dr. Thacker. He was really the lead once we got to a research type of setting. You know, he just had the background, the experience. I mean, just really helped this thing along for a field guy like me. And and so that was really helpful. And so what we really saw there was we, we actually saw, interestingly, there was a correlation with pre-wean mortality. Well, it was huge. It was probably a percent of pigs. But the big thing that we saw was it basically ended up equating to if you're an affected pig, that it's a legitimate anywhere from a one and a half to two pound increase in wean weight over that period of time. We, we did some on again, off again. Uh, so we'd, we'd vaccinate a group then we'd not vaccinate a group. And here's what was interesting with that too, is that even though we did that, it became very clear. But when we finally went and said, okay, this works, and the trial information was all gathered and collected, and we said, fine, we're going to go to vaccinating every group. Clinically, we saw it even get better. It really cleaned up that farrowing house. But back to the effects of that, I think that's the one that I put my hat on the most is that when we, you know, not just sapovirus, but rotavirus, coccidiosis, those mid to late diarrheas that we, we have, those are legitimately causing anywhere from a pound to a pound and a half and maybe up to two pounds, depending on the other conditions of loss in any affected pig. And so you can start to do the math there. If you say, what's my pig worth and what are those pounds worth? You say, let's say I have a fairing house and 50% of the litters are affected and I can take that number of pigs times that weight and whatever cost I assign to that. I know that's a moving target dependent upon what system you're in and how you're either selling your pig or keeping your pig. But then you can put the economics to that. It can be pretty dramatic depending on how many litters you have affected. Yeah, you know, some old rule of thumb math on that, Tom. Like you say, I, that is really a large response. You know, a lot of times you'll see different data sets that have been looked at would say, you know, a pound of weaning weight can be worth, you know, anywhere from three to five pounds at the end of the feeder pig time period, you know, at the end of the nursery. And then that can translate into, you know, anywhere from 10 to maybe even up to 15 pounds of market weight. So that from an economic standpoint is was really a huge response. Yeah, absolutely. And and we didn't follow those pigs and go into nursery and finisher, but the producer had pretty good records as far as what closeouts and days and all that. And he's like, that paid all the way through. There was no question. Oh, that's fantastic. Very interesting. So you did mention that you had some other veterinarians reach out to you. Do you have any feel how prevalent we think sapovirus is out in the industry in these Farron House diarrhea cases now? Being in the industry this long, I have a lot of contacts and it's pretty obvious that with the people that I talk to, while they keep confidentiality, but you know where they practice or where they go. And, and sometimes they do tell you, I mean, they're just, hey, it's in this region or whatever. It's very widespread. And some people have asked me, well, do you think it got disseminated through genetics or semen or feed or whatever? I, I really think back and that's probably a study to, to have done at some point in time is to go back in the, the backlogs of cases that if we have them out there that looked viral related. And I think of times where I thought I had coccidiosis even back in the 90s and said, man, it just didn't respond well to our treatment and, and or our disinfection. And why, why do we still have it? I, I th it's so indistinguishable to just look at that diarrhea and say, this is sapovirus or that's rotavirus or that's coccidiosis, or it's a combination of them all, you just can't do it. And you can speculate, but it's, it's not real. So I really expect we've had it around a while. And just, yeah, through our natural pig movements, 
I'm sure it was in multiplication farms. I'm sure it was in nucleus farms. I'm sure it was wherever and, you know, not pointing fingers at anybody. I mean, I think it was a household virus. And certainly we're kind of wondering today in our world, why are we having some of these finally come out and emerge? Why didn't we figure this out back in the 1980s or the 1990s, if I'm right? And, and we just have more tools. We certainly have a different pig than what we had back then. Maybe it didn't express itself as openly or as often. You know, a lot of questions that we could ask on that. It's well disseminated within the U.S. We know it's in the Canada. They're testing for it up there now at some of the labs in the provinces. So we don't definitely know it's there. We know of literature that would say it's in the Far East, whether it's China or other countries. And so I'm expecting, you know, I don't, I don't know that I know for sure it's in Europe, but, but certainly throughout North America, it's pretty broad spread. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting, Tom. You mentioned, too, a little bit, you know, about post-weaning period. Have you tend to see a lot of diarrhea in that post-weaning period, right? Have you tended to, to find it in the post-weaning period all, or does it really look like this one is just a farrowing house pathogen? No, for sure. If And actually, Dr. Wong at Ohio State, she actually did a lot more work on this even 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I can't remember the exact date, but she'd been at this, at least it was in the 2000s. And so they didn't have the whole clinical expression of it, but where they did find it on some of their surveys, they found probably more in the nursery, you know, as far as PCR positive than they did in the farrowing house. And then as, as I've talked to a lot of our colleagues out there, that has been probably at least the number two question is, man, I keep finding it in the nursery. I, that wasn't where I first saw it, and I've, I've been really blessed that we don't see a lot of post-weaning diarrhea, but at the same time, I have seen it. I've seen pigs come into a, into a nursery, and they start having diarrhea all over. There was some pigs that were purchased, and sure enough, the number one thing that they had was sapovirus. I actually just had a call yesterday from one of our colleagues and said they, they wean a little bit younger pig, and when they do that, They've had a very obvious post-weaning diarrhea, and you know they might be anywhere from down to 16-day-old pigs up to 19-day-old pigs, and so they see that diarrhea, and when they've really worked it up and done a thorough workup, no different than what we did with when we found sapovirus in the farrowing house, that's almost all they find. They have CTs that are down in the, in the low teens, and you know while they might find some rotavirus and others it really is looking pretty clearly to be sapo. So it's definitely, a, you know, no different than our other diarrhea viruses. The flux and the flow, depending on where immunity is at, can push that more to the nursery or maybe maintain it back in the cell farm. No different than, than our other enteric diseases. So, yeah, it's a real deal of both lactation and early nursery. And, you know, it's really interesting, like you say, you found a good tool that Merck was able to provide and looks like you're able to use it. And you've definitely seen some improvements to that disease uh, from using the vaccine. On that farm that you've had the most experience with it, is it something that you have to continue to vaccinate for or do you vaccinate for a while until you feel like everybody has immunity in the farm and you move it back to a, a guilt approach or how have you kind of handled that from an immune management standpoint? To this point, we've continued to vaccinate. So our initial vaccination, we go in, we don't hit the whole herd because it's you know, and, and actually we're working more with Duong. We've got a project here where we're, we're going to try and demonstrate more the maternal antibody effect and or are piglets being infected from sows bringing it into the, into the farrowing crate or kind of really just trying to define more of the epidemiology. But so where our vaccination has gone is we do a, roughly a four-week and 
two-week pre-feral vaccination in a herd that's never been vaccinated. And that has worked really, really well. And then once we've gone a full circle of the herd, everybody having gotten two doses of it pre-farrow, then we'll drop the sows back to a two week prior to farrowing only. And then we'll continue to vaccinate gilts at a four and a two. And within that, you know, the nice part that we have with these mRNA vaccines that have developed out there is we have the ability to also put other things in there like rotavirus. And so because we like to continually do that, we really haven't backed off of stopping doing it because we'll still get a little bit of leak through. And so we've continued to do it. We haven't just said, you know what, maybe it's good enough. Now we can get it out because we'll see a little bit of leak through. And, and you really think about, well, could we potentially tweak the vaccine and make that immunity even stronger? But if you really look at it, the challenge is we're weaning older pigs that slowly the, the sow's milk uh, is, is starting to decline in antibodies. Number two, we wean more pigs and more pounds. I, I gave a different talk not long ago, and on our really, really high-producing herds, at 21 to 22-day wean age, on a few sows, we're weaning 200 pounds a pig. And, and so the demands there is what we see as a little bit of leak through is, is I, I believe we lose the antibody. They just don't quite get enough at the end. We've seen it with PED. If you have something that shakes them up at the end, then those pigs will break right in the crate. And I expect it's the same thing here. So I, I have pretty good evidence it's still around. And, and to stop vaccinating, we think would be a mistake. We always focus on colostrum immunity, and certainly that's important. But, you know, for some of these viral enteric diseases, I really think it's like, just like what you mentioned, it's lactogenic immunity. In other words, if you prime that sow, she carries those protective IgA antibodies throughout the entire lactation period. And like you say, if, if you get anything out of imbalance or the sow quits milking or you move pigs around, there's enough virus in the, in the environment, you'll certainly see some of those breakthroughs that you mentioned. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that, you know, as veterinarians, we focus so hard on uh, teaching our production teams colostrum, colostrum, colostrum. And, and don't get me wrong, it's, you know, the number one thing. If you don't get colostrum right, nothing else goes well. But we've actually completely at times forgotten to talk about the importance of keeping pigs on a viable teat where they're getting plenty of milk beyond that to hold those antibodies that stay in the gut. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of those you have to sometimes remind yourself to go back and say, okay, step one is colostrum, but step two is making sure that piglets have milk because that's where the protection is going to come from on these enteric viruses. Yep. Yeah, PED was the great teacher of that. You know, before we had vaccine tools and things like that, we would see, a, you know, a sow would dry up and they would kick that sow out and leave the pigs in the crate and just creep feed them because maybe they're only a day or two from weaning. And invariably in those early outbreaks, man, it was like, that's where the diarrhea would start. So that was the thing I know per from a personal standpoint, it's like, wow, that really shows you the importance of making sure each pig, you know, gets that lactogenic immunity. They need to be continually, you know, drinking that, uh, suckling those sows that ha can provide that uh, protection, their uh, mammary glands. I think there's a really good lesson all around that for any of these enteric diseases is just because you don't see clinical signs in farrowing doesn't mean the pathogen's not there. And so then we get the story from the nursery and, hey, the sow form says, wow, everything looks great. I don't know what your guys' problem is. And then, you know, we're still carrying those pathogens to the nursery. Now they instantly lose their lactogenic immunity. And kapoof, we get viral disease. And so we say, I don't know what your problem is at the nursery. Well, we still have the problem at the farrowing house. So that's where this thing only works really well for the pig all the way through. If we create a good immunity, 
but our, our sanitation level still has to be really keen. It's great that we kept it out of the fairing house, but, but we have to have great sanitation, not just in the fairing rooms, but the sow's bringing it up. If you go to a filthy gestation barn, she's still dragging it up. The pigs can do great because they have lactogenic immunity, but then we have our nursery problems. To wrap things up, Tom, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or any sort of a take-home message you'd be willing to share with us? Well, I think, you know, the story I've tried to tell along is the collaboration that's involved. Any one entity can't do it. I'm getting a lot of credit for it, but there's so many people in the background. You know, everything from the producer saying, I'm not putting up with this anymore. You got to figure this out. You know, certainly I played that role because I had to do the investigative work up front. But man, the, the ability to have laboratory, diagnostic laboratory support, like what, what I received in this case, you know, I think in particular of Phil Gauger, Eric Burrow. I mean, those guys work, I can't say they worked endlessly, but I know they're, this is something on top of everything else that they had to do. And, and then also the whole team at Merck, you know, as an industry example of helping us out. And then what really made it the big collaboration and makes it, you know, this all takes money. And so, Having support from the Swine Health Information Center in an emerging disease outbreak, that works. I mean, it works. The whole thing works is you, you, you state a good case. You know, that's what they've allocated the money for. We were able to push a lot of this through when, when we were just unsure and we had to prove it to ourselves. We didn't want to just say, well, we found virus. That must be the problem. We wanted to show it from start to finish. And so, you know, continually keeping the relationships that we build not just with our fellow field veterinarians, but with people in the diagnostic lab, people that have gone into industry in different forms of either pharmaceuticals or like the Schick industry support that we get. It's, it's just really big. And then, you know, honestly, this has become a collaboration too with other industry partners, whether it's Iowa State and or this big podcast or whoever, and getting the information out there. We really all have to work together because at the end of the day, remember I said I love being a veterinarian and I think we all do. Maybe, maybe maybe some don't get as excited about the diagnostic part that, than I do, but at the end of the day, we're, we got one common goal, and that's, that's to raise healthy pigs. Thank you again to Dr. Tom Petsnick and Dr. Rodemaker for sharing their personal experience and educating us further on Sapovirus. Be sure to tune back in next month when we tackle the topic of SDRS, or the Swine Disease Reporting System. Until then, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been the PigX Podcast. PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org, or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. Big X, ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.